As you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verses 5 through verse 34. Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 34. Just a reminder, you can find the sermon text as well as an outline of the passage in your, uh, in your bulletin if you grabbed one. Uh, also, some of you might remember, Pastor Kurt preached a great message using part of this passage back on Good Friday. Uh, and as I prepared, I did not intentionally borrow any of that material, but if I, uh, if I say something similar, uh, great minds think alike. And number two, he must have done a good job so much that it just embedded itself into my subconscious. So uh, without further ado, let's look to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Isaiah 10, starting in verse 5, going through verse 34. <clears throat> Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Is my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria? Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord had, has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like, a, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame." And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. <clears throat> and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord, God of hosts, will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. 
For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the past. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lasha, O poor Anathoth. Madmana is in flight. The inhabitants of Gabim flee for safety. This very day, he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Thus ends the word of our Lord. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word together this morning. Let us pray. Oh God, you are the majestic one. And we turn to you for guidance, for direction, for clarity in a confusing world and confusing times. Father, we need your light. We need your truth. Would you give it to us? Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have an inadequate view of what sin is, then you will also have an inadequate view of what sin deserves. That's what Derek Thomas says of this passage, which is full of God's anger. Anger against several different groups. But some anger is justified, isn't it? When there's a video of an old lady getting mugged, robbed, injured, maybe worse, don't you get mad? Shouldn't you? When Broncos fans hear the name Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, don't you just want to scream? When you hear the name Benedict Arnold, the famous traitor of the American Revolution, doesn't your blood boil? And if that anger is justified, isn't God justified in His anger against sin? Isn't the Creator justified? Because what is sin if not cosmic treason against the Creator of the universe, in the words of R.C. Sproul? And if you can get past the justifiable anger of God then you will see his undeserved mercy in this passage, his covenant faithfulness. What do we see just two weeks ago? Lots of anger. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Four times God said that in the passage two weeks ago. And now we see a partial outpouring of anger, an unlikely instrument of judgment and a reaffirmation of God's promise. All in this text, the remnant of will return, but it'll get worse before it gets better. This oracle of Isaiah's, it likely took place after 722 B.C., after the fall of Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel. These words about Israel as a whole, both north and south, and about Assyria, they're likely spoken to God's people. And the upshot of it all, Israel is going to be punished by Assyria, a nation even more evil than God's people. How can that be? Well, we 
We see four lessons today. The first one is this. God uses evil instruments to judge His unfaithful people. God uses evil instruments to judge His unfaithful people. In verses 5 through 11, we'll look at 5 and 6 right now. It says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, God says. Against a godless, godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. By the way, those words spoil and plunder are similar to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, one of Isaiah's sons, the prey speeds, the plunder hurries, that kind of idea. It's from a couple chapters ago. But two things jump out immediately in this passage. One, God calls Assyria the rod of his anger. Assyria is God's tool, God's instrument. God is in control. Two, God calls Israel a godless nation, the people of my wrath. Whoa. Which of those is more shocking? I'm not sure, but you know, maybe at this point we shouldn't be shocked that God is judging his people. If you've been reading Isaiah, God has said, God is holy, his people are not. He must punish their sin and their unholiness. That's not new. And also do not assume that all of God's people were equally wicked. Some were part of the faithful remnant who were humbly clinging to God. But the nation as a whole was wicked, so they, they deserve this. In fact, you might even say, even the good people deserve this, and much worse. Yet the rod of his anger is Assyria. This wicked nation, this must have been shocking for Israel, just like it was for Habakkuk, another prophet, about a hundred years later, best guess we have, when the Chaldeans were sent by God to judge Israel again. Habakkuk 1.13, he prays to the Lord and says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Isn't that how Israel must have felt in Isaiah's day. These Assyrians, <clears throat> they're more wicked than us. We are more righteous than them. Yes, we have done wrong, but we're not that bad. And maybe they were right. And maybe they were completely missing the point. They had been unfaithful. God was judging them and God wanted them to repent and seek Him. Was Israel unfaithful? Yes. Was Assyria God's instrument to judge their unfaithfulness? Yes. Was Assyria aware of God's greater purpose? No. Verses 7 through 11, what does it say? But he, but Assyria, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy <clears throat> the cut off nations, not a few, for he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpit? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Is my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria? Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? You see, Assyria did not wake up and say, 
Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the only true and living God, He wants us to go invade His people to execute judgment upon them. No. They simply wanted to destroy, to take more territory, to conquer more peoples. And because they were powerful and vicious and feared, they assumed they could just keep doing that. The cities mentioned in verses 9 and following, they come in pairs. First the northern one, then the southern one. It's as if Assyria is saying, if I took this city, I can take that city. And most of the time they were right. God was using evil, aggressive Assyria for His own righteous purposes to judge His unrighteous people who knew better. Ralph Davis says, Yahweh is using what Assyria freely desires to do to fulfill His own sovereign design against Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. That may seem unfair until you think about how guilty Judah was. But you see, there's comfort even here. Because this is not outside God's control. This Assyrian invasion, it is not a random mishap in the universe. This is the orderly plan. Disturbing? Maybe. But still orderly and purposeful. Part of the orderly plan of a sovereign God who orders all things according to the counsel of His will and desires. Two weeks ago, I suggested that God might be drawing us closer to Him with this pandemic. He wants us to turn to Him in faith and repentance and humility. And I said it may be God's judgment. I still think that. I think we're wise to exercise some introspection. But I know where that thought might lead as well. Some may ask, you know, here is God. He's he's executing judgment against Judah, as you just said. Fast forward a few hundred thousand years. Exactly whom is God judging right now? Who is it? Who is this directed at? And when the next big event happens, we may ask the same question. And this is where we need to exercise both common sense and biblical caution. I'm not a prophet. You aren't either. We do not know exactly what God is doing right now or at any given time unless He tells us in His Word He is God, we are not. He has not told us what He is doing with every thread that He weaves in history. It was about 10 years ago, John Piper said, God is doing, excuse me, let me get it right here. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Some exaggeration? Maybe. I think he made his point pretty well. And yet, even though I don't know exactly what God is doing in my life or your life at any given moment, I can still know that God is sovereign, that God has a plan, that God is carrying out His plan just like He did when He did this unbelievable thing, sending wicked Assyria to judge His unfaithful people in the Old Testament. And He did it all for the ultimate good of His faithful people. See, Davis sums it up. He says, The Lord of the church is the ruler of the nations, and while ruling the nations, He never forgets His church. That leads us to our second point. Yes, God uses evil instruments to judge His unfaithful people, but He also, secondly, sees the evil of His evil instruments. 
God sees the evil of his evil instruments in verses 12 through 19. That first point's hard enough. There's another question in most of our minds. Why isn't God judging them? If the men more wicked than I are carrying out God's judgment, then when is God going to judge them? It's what Habakkuk was asking. It's what Asaph, the author of Psalm 73, wanted to know. Psalm 73, verse 2, Asaph says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Asaph will later say, It was pointless. For me to be obedient and righteous. And yes, eventually Asaph gets a better perspective on the whole thing. But it takes a while. For a while he is wondering, God, why aren't you punishing those people? Can't you see their wickedness? And it's possible to ask that question in a way that's turning the spotlight from your own sin, right? I ask you this morning, are you trying to avoid the pain of personal repentance by by blame shifting? I don't know. Only you can answer that. Ask God to give you wisdom into that. However, it is also possible to hate your sin, to repent of sin, to love Jesus, and still ask this question, God, why aren't you punishing that person? Why are you letting evil run rampant? You can love God's glory and His reputation so much that sins against God make you righteously angry. Now, perfectly righteous in your anger? Not on this side of heaven. But, you know, maybe maybe the question, maybe it sounds like this. God, why aren't you punishing that guy I work with who cheats and steals and backstabs? That politician from my own party whom I occasionally disagree with. That politician from the other party that I always disagree with. You're supposed to laugh at that one. That guy or girl at school who is always causing trouble. Because underneath those questions is this question. God, can't you see what's happening? Can't you see the evil? It's what Habakkuk and Asaph and Isaiah's friends were asking. Can't you see how evil Assyria is? But but my friends, of course God sees. Of course he sees the evil of his instrument. He hasn't left us in the dark here. Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, when he's finished purifying his people, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God sees their pride, their their arrogance, and their boastfulness. Their pride which forgets God and credits all of their accomplishments to their own might. Notice all the eyes, me's, my's in the following verses. For he, this Assyria, collectively says this, verses 13 and 14, by the strength of my hand I have done it, by my wisdom... For I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. 
There was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Imagine if you were an Israelite hearing your enemy speak words like that, knowing that it was God's judgment, not Assyria's might that mattered the most. In their pride, Assyria forgot God. In their anger, Israel might have forgotten God's justice. They might have forgotten that God could see Assyria's evil. God reminds Israel in verses 15 and following, he was not on vacation. Assyria was the axe, he goes on to say, and God was the one who swung the axe. They were the rod. He was the good shepherd who wielded the rod and the staff to protect his people and lovingly punish them at times. And because Assyria forgot herself, forgot her creator, God would show them who was boss. He would send sickness and fire, fire and sickness. God would burn the forest that symbolized Assyria's greatness. Burn it to stumps. A remnant, you might say, but not the good kind of a remnant. So small that verse 19 says, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Assyria would one day be so small that, quote, a child could conduct a census. History says that's true. We sometimes think life is unfair because we think God can't see other people's evil. The evil around us, the evil that sins against us, the evil instruments that God sometimes uses to judge or to test us. No, my friends, God sees it all. We may not like his timing. We may prefer that he would use different methods, but rest assured he sees. He sees it all. Even a four-year-old can grasp this truth. I cannot see God, but he always sees me, as the children's catechism says. God sees the evil of Assyria, raging like an untamed horse, a wild stallion. But you see, God is the one riding so effortlessly that the horse doesn't even know he's steering until the horse meets his end. As we said at the beginning of the service, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God uses evil instruments. And God still sees their evil. Thirdly, this morning we see as God judges his unfaithful people, God preserves a faithful remnant. It's our third point. As God judges his unfaithful people, God preserves a faithful remnant. Verses 20 to 27. Do you remember Isaiah's sons? I mentioned one of them earlier. Do you remember their names? The other one was... Uh, sh- I can't say it. I'm sorry. It's a tough one. Sha'ir Jashub. It's Hebrew. Sha'ir Jashub. A remnant will return. A remnant will return. He's the one who met fearful Ahaz at the moment of his fear. What did, what did his name mean? A remnant shall return. Or even you might say a remnant shall repent. See the remnant. This idea dominates verses 20 to 23. Really dominates all of Isaiah's book of prophecy, verse 20, it says, In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no more lean on him who struck them, or Assyria, as we'll explain in a minute, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The Holy One whom Isaiah saw in chapter 6. 
The Holy One who scared the life out of them. The Holy One who painfully purged the sin from Isaiah's lips. That Holy One will be their bridge over troubled water. I will lead you home, God says to Isaiah and the rest of the remnant. No longer will Israel lean on some foreign nation to save themselves. They'll lean on God Himself when all odds are against them. Now the background for this has been brewing since Isaiah 7. Syria wanted to invade Judah. King Ahaz didn't trust God to save Judah, so he turned to mighty Assyria and bought their protection. But that protection didn't last. Assyria decided, why don't we just conquer them and take all their money? And after that, God says here, one day you, the remnant, you will lean on me, not on him who struck them, struck you, not on Assyria who is supposed to save you and ultimately slaughtered you, There's a double-edged truth here. The remnant will return. But what is a remnant? As it says in verse 22, only a remnant. Catching the sense of the Hebrew here. But a remnant will return. That's the other half. And it will be a returning, a repenting remnant who sees their sin as God sees it. There's no comparison for the Holy One of Israel. They will be a people who hate their sin, who sing hallelujah when God accepts them in spite of their sin, when He atones for it. The remnant, you'll notice here, is not ultimately spared from the invasion that the whole nation is facing. The end of verse 22 says, Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. 23, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. They will have to weather the siege as well, but the good news is they will be preserved. They will return to the Lord, and their enemy will not strut his stuff forever. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion or Jerusalem, Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Again, from earlier, while ruling the nations, God never forgets his church. He sent evil Assyria to purify his Old Testament church. But he did not forget his promise to ever preserve that church, the people of God for his own possession, zealous for his good works. It was true then, still true now. And as the war rages around us, literal, metaphorical as the case might be, God calls his faithful remnant to trust him. We show ourselves to be God's people when we trust God to be God to flex his muscles in the sight of all the things that terrify us. One commentator says, Isaiah's friends and all of us today, we face the same choice. He puts it this way, whether to respond with calm reliance on God or with a frenzy of self-help, using whatever means the wisdom of the age deems most likely to succeed. Is God still God right now? It's the question we always face. Is he still God right now when it looks like evil is winning, when it feels like we're in the vice grips of trial and testing, when it feels like we're just exhausted? Twenty-some years ago, Dan and I were 
both freshmen living in a smelly dorm room. Now we're both pastors. Dan recently told me and another friend, we have all been through trauma this year. Now some of you might be thinking, no, I haven't been through trauma. All those weirdos who responded to things differently than me, they might have been through trauma. But you see, that's just it. If you're aware of all those weirdos who responded to life differently than you, chances are you've spent time thinking about it, stressed out about it, maybe even angry about it, and you're wondering when they are going to start acting normal again. And at our worst, sometimes instead of talking to them, we're talking to others about it. On vacation, I wrote this down. Almost everyone is overreacting to something right now. Almost no one thinks they're the problem. All of us can do a better job reacting to the overreactions around us. Back to that quote, are you responding to life's circumstances with a calm reliance upon God? That God will sort out all the craziness and preserve you, body and soul, are you responding with a frenzy of self-help and overreactions? Do you know that God will preserve you as part of his faithful remnant? Because if you are practicing daily repentance, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then that's the evidence that you are part of his remnant, small remnant, who will return to him by the power of his grace, by the practice of personal daily repentance. As God judges his unfaithful people, God preserves a faithful remnant. And the last thing we see is this, fourthly this morning, as God judges his unfaithful people, God also judges his evil instruments. Verses 24 to 34. Now we saw some of this already. God's judgment against Assyria, his evil instrument. You can see verse 12, 15 to 19, 24 to 27. But verse 24 is in some ways the pivot. God's anger will turn from the nation of Israel. This is, this is the comfort to the true Israel, the faithful remnant who trusts their God. God's anger will turn. It will turn from them to Assyria. And in verse 26, God compares all this to the great victory over Egypt. You know, when he saved his people by parting and then unparting the Red Sea. He also compares it to their victory over Midian. You might not remember this reference as much. It's when Gideon was, I like to say it this way, when Gideon was dragged to victory by God's faithfulness. And then something interesting happens in verses 28 to 32. You get another description of an Assyrian invasion. Scholars think this isn't so much a historical recounting of exact events, but it's more like, quote, a vivid poetic portrayal of the apparent in invincibility of the Assyrians. Of what Israel must have feared, this whirlwind of wartime fury, conquering city after city, someone says it is, quote, an impressionistic expression of inexorable advance, disaster ever nearer. The cities that are listed in verses 28 and following, they start up north and they move closer to Jerusalem, Israel's capital city, the city of David. By the time you get to verse 29, Ramah, Gibeah of Saul, those are a mere six miles from Jerusalem. These are fortress cities. The last defense is the Alamo. 
But one of them is trembling and the other one is fleeing, verse 29 says. The mood reaches a fever pitch. Verse 30, cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lasha, O poor Anathoth. Madmana is in flight. The inhabitants of Gabim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And yet the prideful, self-confident Assyrians, they never see what comes next. They never see the end coming. We should see it coming. If you're part of God's remnant, His faithful people who cling to His word, who cling to His promises, you should see it coming. Because what does Psalm 2 say? Verse 1 of Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. This is what the nations do. This is always happening throughout world history. And God is trembling in spite of it all because he's caught off guard, right? Uh, Oh no. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now you don't see God laugh in the next verse of Isaiah, Isaiah 10, 33. You don't see him laugh. But one author says, you see a cartoon. You see Assyria, God's acts of judgment, the ones who thought they were the master of her fate. You see the acts known as Assyria getting axed down herself. Verses 33 and 34, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows, the tree branches, with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. What's Lebanon doing here? Well, The cedars of Lebanon were trees that were famous for their size and strength, not unlike the mighty redwoods of California. And Assyria thought she was an axe. She thought she was a cedar of Lebanon, a mighty redwood. But they were no match for the majestic one. What a relief that must be for God's oppressed people. Someone says, though judgment begins at the house of God, a remnant remains. Another says, while God may use evil people to accomplish his purposes, this does not in any way diminish their accountability. In other words, God has not forgotten his promises to his people, and Assyria will get what's coming to her too. A powerless, dependent people like us can often forget the powerful, promise-keeping God whom we serve. We worry that his pruning is ultimately punishment. We worry that he has forgotten us, See, we live in scary times, different times than Isaiah's friends, scary times all the same. And while I fear I've used too many quotes today, I can't resist the urge to close with one more. Ralph Davis, you've heard part of this, now I'm going to let you hear the whole thing. He says, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh's arm may be establishing or eliminating nations, but his eye is always on Zion, his people who is ever pitied, protected, and provided for. 
The Lord of the church is the ruler of the nations, and while ruling the nations, he never forgets his church. Amen. Isn't it great to be part of the church? Isn't it great to be part of the invisible church, the true church in every age, whose numbers are known by God, whose members are always protected? Isn't it great? May we, his people, his remnant, may we be ever grateful for his protection. Let us pray. God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Father, help us take this truth and bury it deep down within our hearts. May it take root. May it bloom and blossom. May we hold fast to it as you hold fast to us. Father, if I've said anything that is incorrect, may these people know you well enough to know the difference. And may your promises still take root in their heart. We pray all this in your son's most precious name. Amen.